The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, let's open in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this evening. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm grateful just to be alive and grateful to be a Christian, uh, that you have poured out on us that kind of lavish grace, which we would not see to be grace. We would not see it to be anything if it weren't for the faith that you've given us. So, Lord, you've given us the gift of faith. And therefore, these words that were printed on pages so long ago uh, in the Scripture have become for us our life, our treasure, uh, promise of future blessing. They give us courage. Uh, even in the face of our own death, O oh Lord, we're unafraid because we believe these words, these promises of God. And so I pray that you'd strengthen our faith tonight, Lord. We, uh, our faith doesn't have an independent life on its own apart from you, but you sustain it at every moment. Uh, as the scripture says, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's also true of our faith. Our faith exists in God. It exists in Christ. And uh, apart from your sustaining grace toward our faith, it would shrivel and die. And so I pray that you give our faith a good meal tonight, that we would be nourished and stronger in believing because we've gathered here tonight. I know it's a sacrifice for people to make their way over here on Wednesday evening. They could be home resting. They could be doing their own things. But, Lord, you brought them here. I pray that their time would be well spent here tonight. And I pray that your spirit would speak and that we would be strengthened. Uh, I thank you so much for the topic tonight as we look uh, at John Calvin's view on prayer. And, Lord, again, our desire is not so much to learn uh, about his views, but only as he was a faithful teacher of the Word do we want to uh, uh, study this tonight. So I pray that we would learn more about prayer and, and more about your Word as a result of our study. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So uh, we're looking tonight at the intercessory ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, how Jesus prays for us. And this is really timely as we are heading into, um, in a few weeks, I think, uh, a meditation on that from Hebrews chapter 4 on Sunday mornings. Uh, one of the greatest passages on this in, in, in the Bible is in Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16. So not this Sunday uh, or the next, uh, but the following we'll have a chance to look at um, Calvin, uh, sorry, at, uh, at what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus' intercessory ministry. So we'll talk about that tonight. But Calvin has this to say, first of all, about the topic of prayer in the name of Jesus. He says, Since no man is worthy to present himself to God and come into his sight, the Heavenly Father himself, to free us at once from shame and fear, which might well have thrown our hearts into despair, has given us his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be our advocate. 1 John 2, 1. And mediator with him, 1 Timothy 2.5. Also Hebrews 8.6 and 9.15 he cites. By whose guidance we may confidently come to him, and with such an intercessor trusting nothing, we ask in his name will be denied us, as nothing can be denied to him by the Father. So then I cited the verses below that Calvin cites there. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or in 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these to you, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 8, 6 says, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, namely uh, the Aaronic priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises. And again, Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So the linking uh, here of all these four verses is mediator. Jesus is our mediator or our advocate. And so he mediates between uh, us and God. Calvin writes, For as soon as God's dread majesty comes to mind, we cannot but tremble and be driven far away by the recognition of our own unworthiness until Christ comes forward as intermediary to change the throne of dreadful glory into the throne of grace. 
as the apostle uh, also teaches how awe should dare with all confidence to appear to receive mercy and to find grace and timely help, Hebrews 4.16. And as a rule has been established to call upon God and a promise given that those who call upon him shall be heard, so we too are particularly bidden to call upon him in Christ's name. And we have the promise made that we shall obtain what we have asked in his name. Jesus said, Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Or again in John 16, 26, in that day you will ask in my name. Or John 14, 13, whatever you ask, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All right. Calvin also made it plain that God would not hear any prayers not prayed in the Spirit, namely in Jesus' name. He says, hence it is incontrovertibly clear that those who call upon another God in another name than that of Christ obstinately flout his commands and count his will as not. Indeed, have no promise of obtaining anything. Indeed, as Paul says, all God's promises find their yea and amen in him, namely in Christ. That is, they're confirmed and fulfilled in Christ. All right, so as you read those things, as you look at it, basically, Calvin is heightening the sense of awe and wonder and dread and majesty we should have in approaching God. If you have small views of those things, small views of the greatness of God, then you won't think much of Christ's mediator role and his role as as our our uh, access into the presence of God. You'll think, well, that's no big deal. We, can, we are free and, and welcome to come anytime in the presence of God. Well, no, we're not. We're sinners. We'd be instantly consumed. We'd be incinerated if it weren't for Christ. And so the, the, the more you make of the holiness of God, the majesty and the wonder, and the more you make of our own sinfulness and wickedness naturally, then the greater is Christ's mediator role. That's really what it is. Susan, are you going to say something? Well, actually, I was thinking something. I don't think it is my hand. Okay. I thought I saw it out of the corner of my hand. Okay, good. And I, I think, you know, let me, let me just uh, remind you of what Hebrews uh, uh, 4, uh, 14 through 16 says. You know, there it's talking about Christ as our, as our mediator. It says, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, be, to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. We could say with boldness. So we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Those are tremendous verses. And basically the ground of our boldness, the ground of our confidence is this great high priest that we have, Jesus. And the author there says that he has gone through the heavens. And so the sense is that Jesus has, has moved through the heavenly realms even beyond. And I'm going to talk about that in my sermon, so I'm not going to say any more right now. But, but in, in that way, opening a, a way for us into the very presence of Almighty God, who is above the heavens. Uh, and uh, Jesus then opens a way for us. And so we find uh, mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now I think you're raising your hand. So go ahead, Susan. Well, yeah. Right. Because I'm going to the Father. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like, uh, I guess I'm using the word non-technically, like a dispensation almost, where a, a period where, okay, after he's gone to the Father, he's going to answer every request in his name. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we'll do greater works. Is that, mm-hmm. would you like well, it's a difficult saying uh, of Jesus's, so you know you, you just have to work on it. How is, how is it that we Christians do greater works than Jesus because he goes to the Father? There's different ways that people have understood that. One is greater in quantity, and I think that is definitely true because if you're talking about millions and millions of Christians who are going to the Father around the world at every at any moment in the Father's name, asking Him to do things, just in sheer quantity. Jesus doesn't equal that. Um, how then could it be in quality, the quality of the works? Is it possible that Christians are doing something in, in greater quality? The only way you could really argue that. 
uh, it is, is, has to do with regeneration. That to some degree, until the coming of the Holy Spirit, you know, people weren't fully understanding Christ crucified and resurrected and all that. And after the coming of the Spirit, people are being genuinely born again, etc. It's a difficult argument, though, because I, I do believe that the Apostle Peter was regenerate while Jesus was still on the earth and that Jesus should take full credit for that regeneration. So I think I'm really leaning toward quantity rather than quality, greater in quantity, not greater in essence that our works are in, intrinsically better than Jesus's. Yes? Yeah. And so uh, it, it has to do with uh, bring, leading people to Christ. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the very thing I was saying. It, it would just be that somehow we now, by the Spirit, post Jesus' ascension and all that, are, are able to do things through the gospel and through the Spirit, never on our own, but through the gospel and the Spirit, because he has gone to the Father, greater works of conversion or something than Jesus was able to do before he went to the cross. I don't know. I'm just telling you it's a difficult statement. It's easy to go with the quantity. That's an easy thing to prove. You know, we certainly are doing more works than Jesus if we're taking collectively, you know, the universal church. One more comment, then we'll move on. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah, just in sheer quantity, I think that's an easy argument to make. So we'll at least go with that. Uh, I'm just not satisfied with that alone, and I just want to push on and see if Jesus is meaning that they're greater in quality too. Um, but you know, we can keep thinking about that. In any case, we know that it's all to Jesus's glory because we wouldn't be getting a single thing from God if it weren't for Jesus. And so, I mean, it's not, it doesn't denigrate Jesus at all, and Jesus isn't in any way denigrated by it. He's the one that said it. Um, he wants us to do greater works than him because he goes to the Father, etc. Okay? So, I think it's, it's beneficial for us to meditate on Jesus as our intercessor, the risen Christ as our intercessor. Christ says, uh, sorry, Calvin says we should carefully note the time when the church was to begin praying in his name, namely after his resurrection and ascension. John 16, 26, in that day you will ask in my name. All right, so again, in the context there in verse 28, he says, I came from the Father and entered the world. I, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So if you look again at Hebrews 4, 14, it says we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, you see. So as Jesus dies, rises again, and then ascends, you know, into the presence of the Father. I mean, you just know the book of Hebrews is talking again and again about how Jesus, having uh, made provision for sin, now sits at the right hand of Almighty God. And so it's because he is presenting to God his finished work on the cross that he, that he is our mediator, our intercessor. And so in Hebrews 10, it says in verse 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have, again, confidence, there's that word confidence or boldness, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. And again, Ephesians 3.12 says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So these are all just aspects of the freedom that we have in Jesus. And I think for us, it would be good to meditate much on the greatness, the holiness, the majesty of God, so that we can make much of what Jesus achieved for us in, in letting us uh, come into the presence of God. Every time I pray as, as a pastor in front of the church on Sunday morning, I try to pause and think about that. I actually probably pray a lot about Hebrews language even before I was preaching in Hebrews because I'm mindful of the fact that a prayer offered frivolously or lightly, not feeling the weight of what Jesus has done for us, will not help the people at all, won't help me. And so it's good for me to model in my praying that I realize this is a great privilege that we have to enter into the presence of God in prayer. And it comes only at the cost of the blood of Jesus. And by the way, I think those two things are completely linked. Namely, Jesus is always pleading his blood for us. He's always pleading his blood. It's, it's the, it, he, he never forgets and the Father never forgets the blood that was shed for us. Calvin's going to make much of that. It's all under the blood and it needs to be under the blood. All your prayers are under the blood. Your best prayers need to be under the blood. And uh, that's really the point that he's making. And so in 1 John 2... Uh, uh, verse uh, 1 and 2, it says, you know, I write these things to you, dear children, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
And so basically then there's an immediate link then between Jesus as advocate and Jesus as propitiation. They're completely linked. And so as the hymn puts it, lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. That's what he's doing. He's pleading the merit of his blood. And that's the nature of his intercessory ministry. Okay? Old covenant saints then prayed only by the mediator Christ, says Calvin. But the shadows of the new covenant freedom we have were obvious in that they had to stand far off while the priests carried their names on a breastplate into the Holy of Holies. So they weren't welcome. Okay? And so in that, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us the lesson while the first tabernacle was still standing, the lesson was given that they didn't have the right to enter. This is setting aside a beautiful glory for Jesus. The old covenant saints are every bit as loved as we are, but they are under that old covenant restriction, having to stay far off from the copy and shadow. The copy and shadow is the tabernacle. They were not permitted to enter in. And God isn't saying, I love you more than them. He's saying that he's giving a glory to Jesus because in redemptive history, it hadn't happened yet. And so the Holy Spirit, it says, was showing that the way into the most holy place had not yet been revealed. And so those Old Testament saints, though their prayers were acceptable to God and pleasing to God, uh, still physically had to stand off from the Holy of Holies and their names were carried for them into the most holy place by the priest with the breastplate that had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel who are representative of you, all right? If you're a Jew in those days, okay? You're in one of the tribes, the tribe of Dan or Naphtali or whatever. You knew what tribe you were in and your ancestor's name on the breastplate of the priest, he's walking in there with your name. That's really how it went. It's representational language. But you're not welcome. You're not, you're not allowed to come in. And so God was showing that, that it hadn't, it hadn't, the way hadn't been opened up yet. There wasn't a way to get in. But uh, now there is. The Old Covenant also taught that our prayers were only acceptable because of the blood of the sacrifice offered to purify them. Christ's blood is the end, in the end, sorry, is the only true sanctifier of prayers. This makes an essential unity then between saints of the Old Covenant and the New. Calvin writes, hence we infer that God was from the beginning appeased by Christ's intercession so that he received the petitions of the godly. If this is true, then why did Christ institute this new time in John 16, 26? You know, in that day or at that, in, at that time, you will ask in my name. Why has he set up something new? Why then does Christ assign a new hour wherein his disciples shall begin to pray in his name? Unless it is that this grace, that, uh, that this grace, as it is more resplendent today, so deserves more approval among us. In other words, post-Christ or post the cross, we should have a greater sense of the worth of prayer than the old covenant saints did. Prayer should be more precious to us than it was to them because we can see quite plainly what it cost. Um, And if this is true, then how much more zealous should new covenant saints be for the privilege of prayer? Uh, Calvin wrote, the uh, less excusable is our uh, forwardness or something like that. It's a strange word. Um, actually, that's not even spelled right. Froward is the word, and it's a KJV word that we don't even use anymore. And I had to look it up. Um, and actually, it's funny because I think, I actually think it came over from my database at Froward, and my and Microsoft Word changed it. I think. So I'm wondering why it says this. But I, I had to go over and get a definition. I've always always kind of sensed what it, what froward meant. But what it means is a habitual disposition to disobedience and opposition. You know a froward child, you know what I'm talking about. Just, you know, sitting down on the, on the outside but standing up on the inside, that kind of thing. You know, it's like, I know what you're talking about. But we have that murmuring, kind of rebellious attitude. And what Calvin's saying is it's less excusable for us to have that attitude unless we embrace with both arms, as the saying is, this truly inestimable benefit which is destined for us alone. In other words, it's just, it's just inexcusable that we should be rebellious and murmuring about prayer. Still less should we complain about it, you know? This is a blessing. It's a blessing that we have access to the Father by Jesus. That's what he's getting at here, okay? So Christ, the only mediator, even for the mutual intercession of believers. Now he's getting into how we pray for each other. And in effect, what he's going to say is we pray for each other through the mediator as well. In other words, you are not bypassing Jesus when you're praying for a brother or sister in Christ. You're praying in Jesus to do that. Okay? If anyone tries to come to God apart from Christ, he'll be completely rejected. Christ is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. 
Christ is constantly the only mediator and by him alone can we approach God. But this doesn't mean that the saints should not pray for each other, not at all. Calvin writes this, Meanwhile, notwithstanding, the saints still retain their intercessions, whereby they commend one another's salvation to God. The apostle mentions these in 1 Timothy 2.1. He wants prayer uh, to be lifted up uh, uh, in, in all places, he's saying there. But all depend solely upon Christ's intercession so far as they are detracting from his in any way. For as they gush forth from the emotion of love in which we willingly and freely embrace one another as members of one body, so also are they related to the unity of the head. When therefore those intercessions are also made in Christ's name, what else do they attest? But that no one can be helped by any prayers at all, save when Christ intercedes. Really, frankly, guys, what I look on it is that my prayer for each for you guys, etc., is just a subset of Christ praying. He's, you're already completely covered in prayer, totally prayed for. You are thoroughly prayed for. We've already talked about this before. The second person in the Trinity prays for you. And the third person of the Trinity prays for you. That's complete coverage. All right? So, the, you know, God the, Fa- God the Father hears constantly prayers of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit on your behalf. So Jesus is, is constantly interceding for you. And Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit himself intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And so you're totally prayed for. I mean, even in the two or three are gathered in my name thing, two are praying for you. So the, the Son and the Spirit are praying for you. We're like, well, then what do we have left to do? Well, what you have left to do is be a subset of that praying. Pray in Jesus' name is to pray after what Jesus is praying for. You know, for, for you, for each other. And so, well, what is that? The, Spirit, the Scripture tells you what he's praying for. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So pray that so-and-so's faith won't fail. When they're going through medical trials, pray that their faith won't fail. That's the kind of thing Jesus is praying, right? That their faith won't fail. Pray that as people are being tempted, that their faith won't fail. That as they're being successful, that their faith won't fail. Satan uses all kinds of circumstances to attack our faith. By the way, that, that, that thing from Luke 22 just teaches me to focus my prayer on the faith of my brothers and sisters. Because that's what Jesus is praying. He's praying for your faith and that it would be sustained and would be strong, etc. So that really gives a focus. When you go through the, the uh, church's prayer directory here, just you know, take a name and pray for so-and-so's faith that it won't fail. And by the way, that prayer that so-and-so's faith won't fail gives you the key, the interpretive key to the book of Hebrews, okay? Because Jesus didn't believe that so-and-so could lose their salvation, and yet they're pra- he's praying that, that so-and-so's faith won't fail. So what is he, an Arminian suddenly? Jesus is no Arminian. I can tell you that right now. He believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. Well, why is he praying that so-and-so's faith won't fail? So that it won't. That's why. And if he stops praying, it will. Our faith is dependent faith. All I'm saying is that he's promised to keep it going right through until you don't need it anymore. He, he started it and he's going to keep finishing it. And so he'll keep praying for you. But we can step up into his intercessory prayer ministry with him and pray for each other's faith that it won't fail. And I can teach and preach so that your faith won't fail too. Okay, so that's why I preach warnings from Hebrews, so that your faith won't fail. You need your warnings, your daily dose of warnings. All right, just like you need your daily dose of great encouragements. You need both, both warnings and encouragements. Scripture gives a, Hebrews gives a, a, a healthy dose of both. And so that's, that's how that, that works. But just pray, pray for that. Go ahead, Sean. Because we are supposed to be children of God, this is part of showing the family resemblance. Sure. Beautiful, beautiful insight. That's right. We're praying like Jesus. We're praying like Jesus, and that's what we're doing. We're stepping up in. And that's, to me, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means to pray what Jesus is praying and to pray by the Spirit of Jesus and to pray for Jesus' you know, agenda and His kingdom and all those things. So all prayers made for the saints in Christ's name then add to His glory as our mediator and our intercessor. They don't detract from him. It's not like he, do, he doesn't need us to come help him in his prayer ministry. He's inviting us into his prayer ministry to be co-laborers with him, that's all. Christ is the eternal and abiding mediator. Christ did not, does not plead for us once for all, but he pleads continuously 
Okay? It's a continual prayer. He, you, you know, you could in effect say, I wouldn't be shocked that there were a verse that said that Jesus prayed for us once for all because there are verses that say he died for us once for all. Um, but it doesn't tell us that. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he constantly is praying for us. And so, therefore, there's an, a, a need, an ongoing need for that. Calvin writes this, For when John says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, 1 John 2, 1, does he mean that Christ was an advocate for us once for all? Or does he not rather ascribe to him a constant intercession? Why does Paul affirm that... Uh, and by the way, he does. If you, if you look at 1 John, it, Calvin's absolutely right. It says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. You see, it's tracking with your life. Oh, Father, now he, she has sinned. I pray that you would forgive. I pray that you'd restore. I pray that you'd convict. You see, he's tracking your life. It's all very mysterious because, of course, he's an eternal being, completely outside of time, but he's still tracking. Yes. And I be as we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's beautiful, you know. Absolutely. Why does Paul affirm uh, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and also intercedes for us in Romans 8.34? But when in another passage Paul calls him the sole mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, is he not referring to prayers? So basically in all these verses he's advocating that Jesus is not a once-for-all advocate or a once-for-all intercessor. He is a continual mediator. I would add, this is me uh, boldly adding something to John Calvin, I think that Hebrews 7 is the best verse of all. Um, verse 24 and 25. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Don't you think that just nails it? That basically he's constantly alive and in that intercessory ministry, he's able to save us completely. In other words, to finish our salvation. And our salvation isn't finished. And so therefore, Jesus has to keep praying for us until we're done being saved. Were you going to say something, Faye? Or, or, all right. So, okay. Just a, a thought. I always see if anyone sins and it's almost, why wasn't it when? I mean, we're going to, well, not everybody, but me, I will. Right. Well, I understand what you're saying. My first answer simply is that if frequently means when or because we are. You know, if you are a child of God, then, you know, act like it really could be translated something like since you are a child of God, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's really the best answer here. The Bible never tells us that we have to sin. Actually, it tells us the opposite. It tells us we don't ever have to sin because we're freed from sin now. So the Bible doesn't ever assume that we'll sin. Romans 7 does give a thorough description of indwelling sin and its tremendous power on us. But even for all of that, at no given moment does the Romans 7 teaching of the indwelling sin compel us to sin that we have no choice. What that means is that at every and any moment of temptation, we don't have to sin. There's no single temptation that comes with, a, with it a certain compulsion that cannot be resisted. So therefore, you really theoretically could be sinless the rest of your life. What Romans 7 is t- saying is you won't because it's so overwhelmingly powerful. And so Paul is basically talking about his own experience there, saying I don't understand why I sin. And, and, and that really becomes all the more poignant with what I just said, because I don't have to sin. I didn't ever have to do any of those things. I was under no force or compulsion. I was an idiot. I was a fool. It's like a, it's like a slave who's received their emancipation and still listening to the old tyrant yelling and jumping to and doing orders. Just out of habit. Even though that, 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 that tyrant has no authority at all to give us any commands. And yet still, we do what it says. So I still think if would probably be, if, if anyone should sin. It, it should give you a sense this, of sin as a strange thing in the Christian life because it really is surpassingly strange. It's as strange as it gets that we Christians sin, and yet it's sadly commonplace. Very, very good question, though. Thank you. All right, let's keep, let's keep going. Um, and therefore, all acceptable prayers made for us, uh, uh, for each other, can only reach God through the one mediator, Christ. Calvin writes this, The Apostle Paul, although an eminent member under the head, yet because he was a member of Christ's body, 
and knew that the greatest and truest priest of the church had not figuratively entered the inner precincts of the veil to the Holy of Holies, but through express and steadfast truth had entered the inner precincts of heaven to a holiness real and eternal, also commends himself to the prayer of believers. So, you know, simply put, Paul asks other Christians for prayer. That's what he said. Okay. And so if, if Jesus were the only one permitted to be a, a, an intercessor, then why is he asking prayer? Which he does quite frequently. In Romans 15.30, he asks prayer. In Ephesians 6.19, he asks it. In Colossians 4.3. And, you know, and in other places besides. He is receiving prayer. And he's asking for it. So therefore, we're permitted to do it. And, uh, says Calvin, uh, he does not make himself mediator between the people and God. Speaking of Paul. But he asks that all members of Christ's body mutually pray for one another, since the members are concerned for one another, and if one member suffers, then the rest suffer with it, 1 Corinthians 12. Thus, and thus the mutual prayers for one another of all members, yet laboring on the earth, rise to the head who has gone before them into heaven, in whom is propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2, 2. For if Paul were mediator, so also would the rest of the apostles be. And if there were many mediators, Paul's own statement would not stand in which he had said one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So in other words, the fact that we pray for each other doesn't diminish Jesus' glory. It doesn't put us in some unique role as mediator or intercessor. Jesus is that, that role. He's the only one that there is. And all prayers of the saints for other saints are going up to God the Father through Jesus alone. That's what he's saying. Any questions about that? All right, well, now we're going to embark on something that probably isn't a major concern of yours as Protestants, but myself, I was raised Catholic, and uh, it has to do with the uh, prayer uh, of the saints or prayer to, to the saints, and by this I mean the departed saints, dead saints, of which I believe with all my heart that they are alive and they're in the presence of God. Um, and uh, I rejoice in that mystic communion that we have with each other but I don't try to talk to them, okay? And I don't think you ought to either. Um, and so that's what we're getting to now is uh, basically the erroneous, erroneous doctrines of the prayers of the saints. So one who takes refuge in the intercession of saints robs Christ of his honor. And here we're talking about dead saints, all right? And by the way, I mean, they'll openly, Catholics will openly make a defense for this, saying, look, you ask brother and sister to pray for you all the time, right? But the great thing about the kind of the treasury of merits and the saints and all that is you can go to the all-star people. I mean, here you got kind of run-of-the-mill saints around you. Actually, they don't even use that language, saints. You know, you got to be voted in by the College of Cardinals. But you want to, I mean, you want to get some really great all-star praying, you can go to these brothers and sisters and they'll pray for you. I mean, Thomas Aquinas or, or Bernard of Clairvaux or, or you know, Teresa de Avila or who knows what all. Pick, pick one. Yeah, go ahead. ones they voted as saints are the only ones that they are certain are actually in the presence of God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the other ones are in purgatory or hell. That's true. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're the only ones that, that, that they're going to say they're in heaven. Good. Yeah, that's a very good point. But what we're talking about now is that it's part of the Catholic theology that we can address these individuals directly and, uh, and ask them to pray for us. So St. Jeremiah, pray for us. I mean, I remember the Mass. They, they, the priest would intone. There'd be long lists of saints, saints so-and-so. They would be sing-song. They'd sing it. Pray for us. I mean, on and on. I mean, these long lists of, of they're asking for prayer. This is what, the, what they did. Yeah? If you really believe that you have access to Christ, why would you go to anointing? We're getting there, dear sister. We're getting there. Uh, I've got some special treats for you on this whole topic tonight. Um, so, Yes. But let's stick with Calvin for a while and then we'll step over to Erasmus and then we'll go back to Calvin. All right. Uh, regarding the saints who having died in the flesh live in Christ, if we attribute any prayer to them, let us not even dream that they have any other way to petition God than through Christ, who alone is the way, or that their prayers are accepted by God in any other name. So let's just simply say, if they are in fact praying for us, we'll get to that in a moment, but they're only doing it through Jesus anyway. So Jesus is still the one mediator. He, they don't, even the saints don't in any way minimize Jesus' role. Secondly, the saints have no independent access to God apart from the one mediator. Now, Scripture, Calvin writes, Scripture recalls uh, us from all, Christ, from all to Christ alone. And our Heavenly Father wills that all things be gathered together in Him uh, under one head, even uh, Christ. 
Uh, therefore, it was the height of stupidity, not to say madness, to be so... Um, I don't know what this is. This is strange. Uh, intent on is really what it should be. Intent on gaining access through the saints as to be led away from him, apart from whom no entry lies open to them. By the way, I just praise God for CD-ROMs and all that. I had to type all of my Calvin quotes in by hand when I was doing my Ph.D. dissertation. I got here to this church and someone gave me a CD-ROM. I was like, now nah, you tell me. I mean, for, you know, you remember, Christy, all those quotes, those endless quotes of Calvin. And then all you had to do is, but it's not perfect when it scans in. Sometimes it, it, the character recognition is a bit off. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, probably. Thank you for that. I'm more encouraged than I was earlier. But yeah, okay. Long story short is is, um, there is no entry to God the Father except through Jesus, the new and living way. So even the saints, they don't have some third or some other way. There is no other way. Now, here's a key concept. The prayers of the saints was taught by Roman Catholics as based on a treasury of merit system, all right, which would be their own good works. Uh, by which they ministered grace to us here below. Cal- Calvin rightly rejected this vigorously. Let me just explain the treasury of merits idea. The idea is that a certain number of good works are necessary to prove your, you know, your good character to God, to God and so be saved. All right? The saints did more than was necessary. So they died with a surplus. And their surplus was put in something called the treasury of merits. And the Pope in particular, as Christ's vicar on earth, had the right to dig into that account and dispense it to you, all right, if you paid a certain fee in an indulgence, all right? And so they, you know, he, the Pope, had access to the treasury of merits. Here, it's up in heaven, and the saints have access to their own treasury of merits as well. And so they can dig into their own box of good works and ascribe those values to you. Do you realize how repugnant that whole thing is? I mean, that's just disgusting. First of all, as I said before, it, there, there is, it's impossible. There is no extra credit in the Christian life. All right? The best you can get is 100%. There is no 101%. Because you cannot ever do more than what God asks you to do. Anything that goes beyond His command is sin. So therefore, if you are a 100%er, that means you did exactly what God commanded you to do. Nothing more, nothing less. We are servants after all. And so to obey is better than sacrifice. There is no extra credit. But none of us has hit 100%. So there is no treasury of merits. It doesn't exist. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's funny because Calvin... Calvin yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you looked at it one way, um, but Calvin Calvin addresses that. You know, last week we talked about that. They're basically just saying this is evidence that I'm in Christ. You know, this this righteousness. This you know. Um, first of all, simply put, David might be just saying I am innocent of whatever they're charging me of. Like, uh, you know, th- there were a lot of dirty deeds that were done to get him to the throne. And, you know, for example, Joab murdering, uh, who, who did he, Amasa, or no, who did he murder? Well, he murdered, uh, who was his counterpart for Saul's household? Uh, Abner. He murdered him, all right? And, and David had to prove he didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't send Joab to, to, to assassinate the man. And so he, he executes somebody who, who uh, killed Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son. Um, you know, I mean, he's got to say, I don't do these things. This isn't me. And so maybe in the Psalms, he's basically saying, my hands are clean. But he's not claiming purity or perfection. He knows that. He says his hairs, his sins are more numerous than the hairs of his head. So that's, you know, you just have to take the whole thing as a whole. But there is no treasure of merits, and we know that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Calvin writes this, but if we appeal to the consciences of all those who delight in the intercession of the saints, we shall find, and this is a key, a key observation, Okay, I've skipped down, haven't I? All right, the yearning for the intercession of the saints comes from anxiety about earthly events. All right, we understand that. Coupled with a sense that Christ is insufficient or too terrifying to approach. Calvin writes this, but if we appeal to the conscience of all those who delight in the intercession of the saints, we shall find that this arises solely from the fact that they are burdened by anxiety, just as if Christ were insufficient or too severe. 
First, by this perplexity, they dishonor Christ and strip him of the title of sole mediator, which, as it has been given him by the Father as a unique privilege, ought not to be transferred to another. Also, by this very thing, they obscure the glory of his birth and make void the cross. In short, they strip and deprive of its praise all that he has done or suffered. Keep reading. And to say that Christ is too severe is to dishonor the obvious kindness and grace which he manifested to sinners while on earth. At the same time, said Calvin, they cast out the kindness of God who manifests himself to them as the Father, for he is not Father to them unless they recognize Christ to be their brother. This they plainly deny unless they reflect that he has brotherly affection toward themselves, than which nothing can be gentler or more tender. Therefore, Scripture offers him alone to us, sends us to him, establishes us in him. In other words, and this is, I really think, where the cult of Mary came from. I really think you're thinking like a medieval person. You're not going to go to the king or to the duke or to the whatever. They're, they're terrifying. They might actually kill you. And so you want to find someone a little softer, a little gentler, an access. Or what, and frankly, the whole desire to find that introduction is, is a good thing, a biblical thing. But the Bible says that Jesus is our access into the throne room of grace. We don't need another one. And to say that Jesus is too stern and foreboding is to strip him of the glory of his gentleness. He said in, in, in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle. So in effect, by going to Mary, for that reason, you're saying, I don't believe you. I don't think that you're gentle. I think your mother will be more gentle than you. And so I'm going to go to you. And so it's really sickening, frankly, in the end. It's really a great dishonor to Christ because it's saying that Mary would be gentler than Jesus. And frankly, if you look at Hebrews 4, what is the author saying? He says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And the author of Hebrews is pleading with us to come because Jesus is a gentle, humble, lowly high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. And so come to him. And so it's, it's really a great dishonor to Jesus, this whole thing. Okay? Also, said Calvin, once the habit of prayer to the saints gets established, Christ as mediator and intercessor in times of trouble gets badly obscured and eventually is going to be forgotten. So now we'll step over to Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is a rascal, I mean, quite frankly. Um, I hope he's a saved rascal, but that's, uh, that's done or not, and there's nothing I can do about it. But he was a humanist, a scholar who slightly predated Luther, but was a contemporary of his, you know, so he was well-known when Luther was obscure, let's put it that way. And uh, he was a scholar who was, uh, you know, uh, known for a number of significant works. Uh, he was able to collate and put together the first Greek New Testament available uh, with the manuscripts that they got uh, when Constantinople fell and the Orthodox had to flee for their lives and brought their Greek manuscripts uh, west and Erasmus put them together in a Greek New Testament, which was of incredible help to the Reformation because the new insights that the Greek uh, Bible gave stripped away some of the problems with the Vulgate. We could go on and on about Erasmus. Erasmus was kind of a reformer, okay? Um, he was tricky. Um, let's put it this way. He was constantly, as a scholar, looking for a patron, all right? A patron is someone who would pay his salary, like pay for his meat and drink. All right? And so he's not one to bite the hand that would feed him. And so he's got to be careful. And so yet he felt that there were tremendous excesses and problems with the Roman Catholic medieval Catholic Church, which there were. Luther said at one point, not saying who he meant, but I think Erasmus is who he had in mind, others attack the life of the church, I attack the doctrine. Okay. Well, Erasmus went after the life, the immorality, the wickedness, the stupidity. Uh, he knew the Bible and knew it well, and he was able to look at practices and see what was wrong with them. Well, what did he do about it? Well, he wrote. Well, what kinds of things did he write? Tricky things, slippery things. As a matter of fact, Luther said, Erasmus is like an eel, wriggly. Only Christ can catch him. All right? <laughs> and so, basically, you're never quite sure where he's at. All right. So what does he do? Well, one of the things he wrote where the, writes are these colloquies. Now, what colloquies are? They're like little plays, all right, with with you know with lines back and forth. It's like reading Shakespeare, Hamlet, or whatever, and they're incredibly funny. 
All right. As a matter of fact, Erasmus's colloquies are some of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. All right. One of them is called the shipwreck. And here he talks about praying to the saints in a time of trouble and what it really looked like. And basically, this is like stepping into a time capsule. And you start to see the mentality of the medieval Catholic person and how they would think in a time of, 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 of uh, danger. So this is uh, an excerpt of the colloquy, the shipwreck. Basically, what's going on is a man named Adolf is describing to a friend named Antony a horrifying experience in a terrible storm at sea. Various people on the ship are crying out in terror about uh, to die, and so they're afraid. So we kick into the colloquy. Antony said, well, what did they say? Adolf, oh, merciful sea, oh, most generous sea, oh, most rich sea, oh, most beautiful sea, be pacified, save us. And a deal of such stuff they sang to the deaf ocean. Antony, ridiculous superstition. What did the rest do? Adolf, some did nothing but spew, and some made vows. There was an Englishman there that promised golden mountains to Our Lady of Walsingham. Uh, that's Mary, but of Walsingham. If he could somehow get but, but get ashore alive. Others promised a great many things to the wood of the cross, which was in such and such a place, and others to that which was in a different place. And the same was done by the Virgin Mary, who reigns in a great many places. And they think the vow is of no effect unless the place be mentioned. So it's Mary of this or Mary of that or Mary of the other. But anyway, they're crying out that their lives would be saved. Antony, ridiculous, as if the saints did not dwell in heaven. Adolf, some made promises to become Carthusians. Those are monks. There was one who promised that he would go uh, on pilgrimage to St. James at Campostella, barefoot and bareheaded, clothed in a coat of mail and begging his bread all the way, if he could just get out of the storm, right? Uh, did nobody make any mention of St. Christopher? Adolf, yes, I heard one, and I could not forbear laughing, who, bawling out loud lest St. Christopher should not hear him, promised him, who was at the top of a church at Paris, rather a mountain than a statue, a wax candle as big as he was himself. When he had bawled this out over and over as loud as he could, an acquaintance of his jogged him on the elbow and cautioned him, be careful what you promise, for if you should sell all you have in the world, you'll not be able to pay for it. He answered him softly, lest St. Christopher should hear him. You fool, says he, do you think I mean what I say? If I once get safely to shore, I would not give St. Christopher so much as a tallow candle. Like I said, it's funny. Antony asked Adolf, what did he do to save himself in the storm? Antony said, how affliction makes men religious. In prosperity, we neither think of God nor saint. But what did you do all this while? Did you not make vows to some saints? Adolf, no, none at all. Antony, why so? Adolf, I make no bargains with saints. For what is this but a bargain in form? I'll give you if you do so-and-so. I'll give so-and-so and if you do so-and-so. I'll give you a wax taper if I swim out alive. I'll go to Rome if you'll save me. Antony, but did you call upon none of the saints for help? No, not so much as that neither. Why so? Well, because heaven is a large place. And if I should recommend my safety to any saint, as opposed to St. Peter, who perhaps would hear soonest because he stands at the door, before he can get to God Almighty, before he could tell me my condition, I may be lost. So imagine a big city, and while Peter's running through the city... By the time he gets there, I'm going to be drowned anyway. <laughs> uh, one of the terrified people was a Dominican monk. The dialogue goes as follows. What became of the Dominican? Uh, Adolf, as the old priest told me, having implored the help of his saints and stripped himself, he threw himself naked into the sea. Uh, what saints did he call upon? Well, St. Dominic, St. Thomas, St. Vincent, and one of the Peters, but I can't tell which. Uh, but his chief reliance was upon Catherine, Catherine of Siena. Now, here's the key quote. Christ never came to mind? No, not as the old priest told me. And that's basically what Calvin's saying. He's saying once the saints come in with all of this truck, all this stuff, Jesus just disappears. And it gets worse than that. All right? With the veneration of saints, Calvin says the focus on saints can end up being a doorway back to polytheism and pagan superstition. This is what Calvin wrote. But stupidity has progressed to the point that we have here a manifest disposition to superstition, which once it has cast off the bridle never ceases to play the wanton. For after men begin to concern themselves with the intercession of saints, gradually they attributed to each a particular function 
so that for a diversity of business, sometimes one intercessor would be called upon, sometimes another. Then each man adopted a particular saint as a, I don't know what that is, tutelary deity in whose keeping he put his trust. My patron saint is so-and-so, basically. It's a patron saint, all right? Not only were gods set up according to the number of cities, something for which uh, the prophet long ago upbraided Israel in Jeremiah 2, 28 and 11, 13. You have as many gods as you have cities, O Israel. But even according to the population. Calvin says, however, it doesn't stop there. And finally, there are very many who do not refrain from the hard sacrilege of calling upon the saints, now not as helpers, but as determiners of their salvation. Here is where wretched men fall when they stray from their lawful position, that is the word of God. Priests, however, applaud this because it makes money. Prostrate before a statue or a picture of Barbara, Catherine, and such saints, they mutter, Our Father, so far as the priests... So far are the priests from concerning themselves with curing or restraining this madness that, attracted by the odor of gain, they approve and applaud it. But it greatly dishonors Christ. He said, how much farther has this devilish insolence spread when men do not hesitate to transfer to the dead what properly belong to God and Christ? All right, I, at that point, kicked out of this whole topic because I know it's not a major issue for us. But just this is, this is why the Reformation was necessary. And this is exactly what people by superstition believed in terms of heaven and hell and salvation. It's tragic. And that's why I said to step into the colloquies is to step back in time. It's like you're opening up a time, a time capsule and breathing this weird smelling air. You know, like, did people really do that? Yeah, they really did. So anyway, let's keep going. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, Pastor, in your, in your mind today, uh, of course, we, we, we are not engaged in this. Better not be. All right, just let me know if you are, and we'll talk about it. I mean, is there any danger, though? Is there? A, do you see any any danger um, in evangelical Christianity where, though not this specific, um, that that we could be falling into some? Well, I mean, there's always a danger. I, I just find that Satan just kind of does the same thing over and over and over. He just keeps recycling these things. Right. You know, it's just you're always eating leftovers with Satan. You know, I mean, it's really what it is. And so he brings out Arianism and it becomes Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it's just it's what he does. He rummages through the freezer and microwaves it and serves it. And so my, my feeling is let's just be alert and just know that this is what they were doing. There is one mediator, Jesus Christ. And so anything that diminishes from Christ as the one mediator is, uh, is a problem. I don't know if it's heading us toward the saints, but who knows. I, I do sense a growing paganism in American culture. I mean, more and more interest in the Greek gods and goddesses and all that. Uh, more and more interested in pagan kind of ideas and rituals and stuff. So watch out for that because it's going to influence the church too. Go ahead, Mark. Absolutely. And basically, I think Calvin said it best that this is what happens when you get away from the Word of God. Um, so I, I don't know where that quote is. I just read it a second ago. But basically, yeah, that's, I mean, when you, when you, yeah, here it is. Uh, here is where wretched men fall when they stray from their lawful position. That is the Word of God. All right, let's keep going. Let's talk a little bit more about prayer. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we're almost out of time. Kinds of prayer, public and private. So Institutes 320, 28 through 30. Uh, private prayer. Calvin divides private prayer into two main headings, intercession and thanksgiving. Okay? In asking and beseeching, said Calvin, we pour out our desires before God, seeking both those things which make for the extension of his glory and the setting forth of his name and those benefits which conduce to our own advantage. In giving thanks, we celebrate with due praise his benefits toward us and credit to his generosity every good that comes to us. David, therefore, has combined these two functions. Call upon me in the day of need, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Psalm 50, verse 15. Scripture, with good reason, enjoins us to use both constantly. So both intercession, or asking for things, beseeching, and then thanksgiving. Um, our constant neediness alone should drive us to constant prayer. 
All right? You should have a sense, an acute sense of how needy you are at every moment. For, says Calvin, as we have stated elsewhere, the weight of our poverty and the facts of our of experience proclaim that the tribulations which drive and press us from all sides are so many and so great that there is reason enough for us all continually to groan inside of God and to beseech him as suppliants. For even if they be free of adversities, the guilt of their transgressions and the innumerable assaults of temptations ought still to goad even the holiest to seek a remedy. In other words, meditate much on your neediness. If you don't really think you're needy, then get back in the Word and realize you're needy. All right? Because we are really needy. We're constantly assaulted and constantly, um, you know, tempted and tried. All right? Then, conversely, though, how much more should God's constant and astonishing goodness drive us continually to thanksgiving? So, again, we've got two headings on private prayer. You've got things you're asking for and things you're thanking for. All right? So, the, your constant neediness should be pressing you to be asking for stuff all the time. And God's constant goodness should be pressing you to give him thanks all the time. That's what he's getting at here. Uh, Calvin wrote, in, in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, there can be no interruption without sin. In other words, if you stop thanking and praising, you're sinning. <laughs> so just keep thanking and praising. That's what he's getting at. Uh, it's clearly the sin of omission. I should be thanking him. Doesn't it say give thanks in all circumstances? Well, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's a command. All right. Since God does not cease to heap benefits upon benefits in order to impel us, though slow and lazy to gratefulness, short, we are well nigh overwhelmed by so great and so plenteous an outpouring of benefactions, by so many and mighty miracles discerned wherever one looks, that we never lack reason and occasion for praise and thanksgiving. Okay. Fourth, uh, Calvin heaps up biblical examples of this thanksgiving. I only did this, and we don't have to read it, um, but I, I just want you to know the Institutes is saturated with scriptural references and quotes. I don't actually always choose those. I actually try to just choose Calvin's prose on them, but probably there's much more scripture quote than there is Calvin's prose in most of these subsections. Uh, this, is, this is all edited. I've edited this, these sections. But, I mean, if you were to go, he's just giving you just lots and lots of verses that explain how true the things are that he's saying. And so I just wanted you to see that. You can read through the verses yourself. I mean, we know it. Aren't the Psalms, aren't, isn't the Bible filled with, with people giving thanks to God for things, constantly thanking? And so he gives examples. Uh, Calvin says, Our praises must flow from our love relationship with God. Not only do God's benefits claim for themselves the extolling by the tongue, but they also naturally win love for themselves. I love the Lord, said David, because he heard the voice of my supplication. Psalm 116. A sacrifice of praise, said Calvin, is only acceptable to God through Christ's blood. So isn't that something? I mean, here you wanted to praise God and you still need to be cleansed by His blood. Yes, you do. Even your best praise needs to be cleansed. And why is it? Because it's just simply inadequate. I mean, God's, God's greater than you think He is, even at the very point you're trying to praise Him. You know, you, you go to God for some specific blessing He gave you in your life. Maybe you're having some economic difficulty and some money came in on it. You bring it back to God and praise. That prayer needs to be cleansed. And why? Because you're still underestimating what God had done and your own unworthiness and all these sort of things. So you're just under the blood all the time. And any Christian isn't offended or upset by that. To God be the glory, to Jesus be the glory. But everything we do all the time, it needs to be under the blood. That's what he's saying. Concerning public prayer, he talks about the necessity of it and the danger of it. Okay? Uh, public prayer is necessary. We need to have times of praying together. And those times need to be set. Everybody needs to know when they are. Okay, that makes sense. We're having a prayer meeting this week. When is it? Spirit will lead. All right? It's like, well, let us know. Put it on the website. You know, I mean, other than that, you know. So Calvin's just obviously just advocating for co corporate worship. Sunday morning at a certain time. And it's set by, by mutual convenience. Everybody knows it's then. That's what he's getting at here. And he's saying the presence of a crowd of people is a special temptation in prayer. It is. When you get up to pray in front of people, it is tempting to forget God and pray in a way that makes you look a certain way. And this is a very great danger for pastors and others that get up to pray. It's important that pastors who are about to pray keep in mind their true audience is God. Go ahead, Sean. I was noticing in the paragraph above, he points out certain hours indifferent to God, but necessary for men's conditions. Yeah, that's Calvin. So that's that's uh, echoing Paul with the yeah. whole, which day of the week should we worship? And 
Every day. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Is I, I'm, I'm about to get into the whole Sabbath question in Hebrews 4 and, and briefly because I don't think that's what Hebrews 4 is about. So it wouldn't really be right for me to go on to Sabbatarianism much in Hebrews 4 because that's not what he's talking about. He's really talking about a higher Sabbath rest. But it's worth mentioning because we need to understand how the Sabbath was a picture or shadow or type of that future Sabbath rest. But, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, you get the feeling that I mean, every day they used to meet in Solomon's Colonnade, all right? When did they meet for worship? Every day, all right? Well, what, what about the first day of the week? Well, I think they did that, you know, and I think that's fine. You know, the bottom line is we need a time, and I think it's okay that it's the first day of the week and not the seventh, the Sabbath, etc. We just needed a time to focus and to work, and I think that's really where we go. We're out of time, so let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the things we've studied today. Uh, thank you for Calvin, who's been just a wonderful guide for us. I thank you, O Lord, for the insights that come from him, but most especially I thank you for Jesus, our great intercessor and our mediator and the blood he shed. Father, as I preach soon on, on Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, I pray, give me a special grace to make it plain, just incredi- the incredible privilege that is open for us in those three verses. This great high priest who has gone through the heavens, who, who understands what it's like to be tempted and who's gentle toward us as we, as we struggle and who has thrown open the door into the very throne room of grace. I just pray that you would help me to make it clean, uh, clear and plain what that means. Amen. Just in terms of the handout, what you have, you might want to look at it. He talks about corporate singing, uh, music, other things like that. It's beneficial. So I'll go ahead and read it. We're done. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.